Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number two of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Today I'm speaking with Doug Pattison, a former case officer with the Central Intelligence Agency who worked all over the world. Doug had some amazing experiences during his time with the CIA, and it was fascinating to talk to him about the end of the Cold War, the rise of global terrorism in the 1990s, and what it was like to live and work in high-threat environments overseas, as well as what life is like once you've left the CIA. Doug, thank you for joining me today. I know that you've spent a number of years with the Central Intelligence Agency as a case officer, and I'm sure you had a lot of incredible experiences on your overseas tours, so I'm really grateful for the opportunity to learn about them from you firsthand. And I know that our listeners are going to be grateful as well. Can you go ahead and just take us all the way back to the beginning and describe what brought you to the CIA in the first place? Sure. Happy to do that. Glad, glad to be on the show and, and glad to be able to share a little bit of what I learned for folks. It's it's fun to be able to, where appropriate, demystify this world and give folks a little bit of insight into it. So I started, I was actually an undergraduate student at the University of Texas and really wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with my life. I was getting a degree in international business and finance and knew that I wanted to do something overseas in some capacity, but really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I also wasn't a super great student. That had far more to do with my effort that I put into stuff than it did with my capabilities, I think. But it definitely impacted my GPA. I guess it's more appropriate to say I focused more on beer and girls than I did <laughs> grades at the time. It happens for sure. Yeah, exactly. So, so senior year comes and, and I, I found that some of those lack of effort chickens were coming home to roost as I was trying to get a job and I wasn't liking all the options that I did have. And so I was attending a recruiting day on campus where, you know, various companies from all over the, the U.S. were there trying to recruit students graduating to, to come work for them. And somewhere in the midst of the seas was a little booth being run by a, a guy from the Central Intelligence Agency, which I thought was both odd and cool at the same time. So I spent some time talking to him and he spent some time looking at my lackluster grades and said that he really didn't know that there'd be much fit for me at CIA because he was looking for stronger academic performance engineers, analysts, those types of folks. But he did say that, you know, after we ch chatted for a bit, that he thought maybe if I was suited for any role, it might be the role of a case officer. And I said, well, what what's that mean? What is that? And he said, well, those are the folks that go out and they recruit the spies that we collect information from. They run those cases and they manage that that relationship. And he gave me a little bit more insight to it and talked about how most case officers spend the majority of their career overseas while many of the other roles at CIA spend their time at headquarters. And that sounded like about the only aspect of it that I'd be interested in. And so, so he set me up on that path towards recruitment into the clandestine side of CIA at that point in time. That's great. What do you think it was that he saw in you at that time? Do you know what made you stand out from any other interested people that day? I, I think part of it was he was 
literally looking for analysts and engineers and scientists folks to go on to the, the tech and DI, Directorate of Intelligence sides of the house. And that's what he was advertising for. So he was getting a lot of candidates that were coming from those backgrounds. And the collection side of the house of the Directorate of Operations is where the human takes place, human intelligence collection. And, and so there's far more people oriented, far more people skills oriented. And I think if, if he saw anything at that moment, what he saw was an, a natural ability in me to meet people, connect with people and move towards a, a goal and kind of execute on that plan. And so, but, but I don't know for sure because, you know, he didn't obviously tell me and, and it was clear that he was not impressed in many respects by that. But the recruiters that I spoke with after that, once I got into the DO side, gave me much higher confidence that in both my ability to do the job and my belief that perhaps I did belong here than did that first recruiter. I see. Do you think that what he saw in you was correct? Is it your ability to connect with people and move toward a goal that made you successful in your career? Or were there other factors as well? Other natural factors, not just your training and everything that came afterwards? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it was... That, along with the ability to make good judgments, demonstrate a high degree of, of judgment and intellect, those needed to be somewhat natural abilities as well in order to hold on them for, through the training. And I do believe that I, I always had an easy way with people and with the ability to, to establish relationships and then build the, the trust necessary to do the job. That's not to say that, you know, I didn't carry my fair share of imposter syndrome throughout the, the midst of it, like most of us did, at least starting out. But but yeah, I think I feel like he was right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I can imagine that imposter syndrome really rears its head a lot once you're in that training pipeline. Did you run into a lot of people actually once you got to training that made you think, my gosh, I'm here with, you know, these titans of espionage, so to speak, these people that have made history, you know, and now I'm sharing a class with room with them, or I'm learning from them, or they're mentoring me, for example. It's interesting. For me, the imposter syndrome didn't really hit until after I completed training and got overseas. In the midst of the training, we're built up a lot and told that we, you know, we were the best of the best, you know, so on and so forth, chosen to be here and chosen to be in this room. So there's a, a lot of that there, even though you know you're being evaluated and there's folks washing out along the way. But there's a lot of competing egos in in that room in the training, and probably none of us fully realized at the moment the legends that we were surrounded by, and we all probably missed some learning opportunities and certainly some mentoring opportunities to sit at the feet of folks that had been doing this, that had, had created this business in the modern sense by working in OSS and in the early days of CIA after, you know, 47, because we were also focused on ourselves. And so I think there was a mix of it in there. Oh, wow. I see. Going back that far. So was it 1988 that you joined? Is that right? I joined in, in 89. 88's when 89. I graduated college. The The recruitment cycle in obviously takes a while. And so I had started that process in 88 in my senior year, graduated in December of that year, and then joined CIA in June, July of the following summer. Okay. I see. That's amazing to think that you were, I guess, seeing guys in 89 that were still around at the very beginning, back in 47 or even earlier with the OSS. That's really incredible, the changes that must have come 
since those guys joined, since they were young men and women. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the, the, the OSS guys that were around then were all retired, but were still coming back as occasional contractors, almost solely in the training pipelines. Mm-hmm. But I remember, you know, my f- very first mentor in the agency, he actually didn't retire f- completely from this line of work until probably 2010 or so, somewhere in that, that time frame, And he had started working in, I want to say he started working in like 51. Wow. And so you figure he, you know, he hit six different decades of working in this field. That's incredible. That's my gosh, the things that stories that he could tell. Yeah. Is that someone that he ever publishes memoirs or anything like that? That'd be an incredible read for sure. No, he never did. And and many of these guys are truly consummate, quiet professionals who just went out there and they were passionate about the work and they were passionate about building the skill set into the next generation of officers who was following. I believe it. I believe it. So the training pipeline, was it pretty difficult for you? I mean, was it like a lot of field exercises for you or can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. It was depending upon the role you're hired into in the agency, the training pipeline is going to vary. At that time, we were hired into a career training program that meshed a mix of analysts and operations folks and science and technology folks, et cetera, through part of the training. And then we would diverge and go off into our specialized training areas. And so you had some training in Northern Virginia to learn the business of the business, right? So you'd rotate through various units uh, learning how they do things, and then you, both within operations and not, and then you would go back and do training at one of our offsite training facilities, and that sometimes that would be field exercises in a in a kind of paramilitary sense, and we called that that amount of training or that that segment of training we in essence refer to as like outward bound but with guns where you know we got to go do a lot of the traditional you know weapons familiarization small unit tactics boat handling just land nav all a seer a, a short version of seer and that sort of stuff and you know that was probably the single most fun part we had to do pt and that sort of stuff every day and there were folks that kind of washed out on the pt side and and that sort of stuff and then later on we would come back to another offsite training for the core work for us as operations officers which was the the learning the skill sets of how to recruit and run spies we'll be right back my name is koji and i'm michelle and this is the japanese america podcast so this is where we look at all things japanese american we will bring alive the history culture and people that make up this diverse community in this month's episode we'll examine koji's unique family history to help bring the story alive we brought on actor and comedian derek mio he was reported to be extremely pro-japanese and anti-american in sentiment her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Sure. So is there anything that you can tell me about that? Like what type of things you might have have learned and how to connect with people overseas in a foreign country? Can you get into any specifics about the personal skills that you bring to that? Yeah, I can. One of the things, just so our our listeners are aware, 
when somebody joins CIA, and it can be for somebody who served there for as, as short as a college internship, you end up signing secrecy agreements that require that before you publish any information about the organization, that that information is submitted to the Publication Review Board at CIA for review of classified information. And so when I talk about stuff like this, it's all stuff that's been submitted to CIA for various reasons, sometimes writing. I teach a class on intelligence collection, those sorts of things. And so, yeah, I can talk about it. I've kind of figured out and, and pre-approved that process in doing it. And so what they do is they teach you at its core, what is it about uh, intelligence collection that we on the in the ops side of the house do? And how do you recruit and run spies? So what is the process, the agent acquisition cycle of spotting, assessing, developing, and recruiting those assets? How do you run them? How do you keep them safe in the course of the relationship? How do you ensure that you're able to manage the relationship without other folks becoming aware of it and those sorts of things? And then how do you actually gather information from those individuals and write it up in ways that are meaningful and able to be used by analysts back at headquarters to better inform policymakers and those making decisions that are relevant to U.S. national security. Sure. Is it common, in your opinion or in your experience, to develop like a very long-term relationship with someone overseas? The reason I ask is that, for example, I know a very famous Cold War spy in Russia, Adolf Tolkachev. I think he met with something like five different case officers over the five years or so that he was active with the CIA. So is it a case of where people are getting handed off to other people? Or is it like you you grow this relationship and it bears fruit years down the road, for example? Well, one of the things you find in looking at the intelligence world is the answer to almost every question is going to be, it depends. Sure, sure. Be because it's going to depend on the specifics of that situation. However, in, in general terms, most case officers can expect to run cases that they did not recruit over the course of their careers. And most assets who are recruited, were they to think through it, would expect to be run by multiple case officers through the length of that relationship. There's always going to be exceptions to that stuff, but but yeah. But that said, I also am aware of you know the, the relationship between an asset and a case officer or a handler is a very intimate relationship. And, and when it's done well, strong emotional connections are often made. And so those handoffs can be jarring and difficult sometimes, but the relationships may be able to be picked back up at later moments in time. And I know case officers who recruited a source and 30 years later, because of the nature of both their roles, particularly changing, were able to rekindle friendships that were, were critical to them and, and critical to our national security at moments in time when it mattered. But later on, we're able to maintain and build strong relationships as friends, partly because of that emotional bond that was built between case officer and asset way back when they were running the case. Hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. I always thought of that as kind of a, a cliche from the movies where somebody's called back in, you know, and so-and-so in Iran will only talk to you. Yep. Are you saying that, that that's a, there's a kernel of truth to that then? Absolutely. There's a kernel of truth to that. There's a truism that the relationship needs to be between the organization and asset. But that said, we're talking about humans and human lives. And at some level, when it matters, it may be important to leverage the depth of that relationship with somebody else. And we recognize that. And there is truth to what you see sometimes in, in those film depictions. Okay. All right. That makes a lot of sense. So you come in in 19... 
89. And I guess as a, as a college student, you're probably looking at what's going on with the Soviet Union. We're at the what we now know is the end of the Cold War. Did it feel like the end of the Cold War as you were getting recruited into the CIA? It did not feel like the end of the Cold War, at least to us. Maybe you know it was because we were still young and still growing in our sense of understanding of, of geopolitics and, and that sort of stuff. But it still very much felt like the Cold War was in in full force. Felt like the kind of the Russians were were still the main enemy. Eastern Bloc was still there. We didn't feel like we had to worry a lot about the Eastern Bloc in many respects because they were so so weak, but they were still there. And obviously, the Iranians were still kind of riding high from their efforts to kick out the Shah and overthrow the, the embassy a decade earlier. The Vietnam War felt like somewhat distant past, even though it really is was still fairly fresh. But the Cold War still felt very much in force. And we were actually mm-hmm. in the midst of of training when the wall fell. And we had just come in from a field exercise and we turn on the TV and we're cleaning weapons and doing all sorts of stuff like that. When we see the news come on and, and there's you know folks all over Berlin swarming the wall, tearing it down, you know, tearing off pieces of it. And it just it was awesome to watch, but also confusing for all of us because we didn't have the foresight to know that terrorism was going to be this big threat that was coming. And we assumed that with the wall falling, it meant that literally the Soviet Union would go away as a as a threat or that Russia would no longer be a threat. And so we we wondered what we would have as a foe to counter going forward. And then obviously we figured that out along the way, but it was a little unsettling in those moments. I'll bet. Was it, I mean, was there an, a sense of, of hope about all of this or was there a sense of cynicism? Like there's going to be, you know, something even worse rise from the ashes of the Soviet Union and of East Germany? No, I think it was innervating in the sense of we were hopeful that, I mean, we knew we had won, quote, Right. And so the question was, were there going to be other threats that, that rise to undermine us? And, and the answer we knew certainly was going to be something would, would come. It's a fallen world, so to speak. And so you, you know that there's that risk there. But it was definitely a sense of exuberance and excitement when you feel like you've won this war. And particularly, I think in the intelligence community, it felt that way because, you know, it was not so clearly delineated as a hot war might be where you have an ongoing basis where you have, you know, a clear understanding of who won what battle. In this case, it was one of those rare instances where it felt like, you know, you could claim victory for a side of the house that doesn't often get to have public success. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you watch the complete and total collapse of the entities that were arrayed against you, and it's hard not to see that as a victory. And we know that that's not a simple black and white story anymore, but at the time, I'm sure it seemed that way. Right. And it was the collapse not due to a decisive military battle, but a collapse due to a combination of diplomatic forces as well as intelligence at work that ultimately got there. Oh, absolutely. How much was the sense, like, I guess I would say in the culture within the CIA, how much was the sense that it was your contributions or the agency's contributions that tipped the scales? Did you see that at all? Or did people just go about their day? So we were in training right around that moment. And I I did not spend any time in the Soviet division. So I can't really assess that. I will say that for those of us in training, we didn't feel like we necessarily had earned the right to own a claim to having brought it to an end because we were just baby spies. Right. But we felt proud to be part of an organization that had such a seminal role in it. So after this, you 
went on to your first duty station, I guess. Did terrorism end up becoming your focus as the Cold War ended? I mean, your personal focus? So it's interesting. So right as the Cold War ended, we obviously had Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And so I got drawn into a program within the Counterterrorism Center prior to my first assignment where they were going to be building a cadre of counterterrorism certified officers that were going to work in kind of non-traditional locations around the world to deal with counterterrorism. So I, I started on a, a separate training pipeline for that at the completion of kind of the rest of my traditional case officer training. And so that that took place in the six months before my mm. first assignment where I was going to end up going to work against some of those CT targets overseas. And that ended up being my only tour where I worked the CT target directly, but it was my very first tour and very first introduction to it. And it ended up being a high threat tour as well. So that that brought with it some challenges in asset handling and personal safety and, and that sort of stuff. Oh, wow. Was there ever a time during that tour or really any other where you felt like you were personally in danger? I mean, like any particular moment or any particular day or anniversary or anything like that? I mean, no, there were, it's interesting. You know, most of us go through the, our time in, in the agency and short of when you have to go serve in a, in a war zone like Iraq or Afghanistan, you may never carry a gun your entire career. This first tour, you know, I was, I don't know, what, 23 years old, twenty just turned 24 years old, reporting overseas with body armor and a gun, going out to work these targets, and really didn't fully understand it. And so there were moments where I probably thought that the threat was higher than it was. So we were operating overseas in a high threat environment where there had been relatively recent assassinations of American, official Americans in that country, where multiple Americans were uh, would regularly appear on the terrorist targeting lists there by name. In fact, that was that was how I got to go on this assignment because I got to replace somebody who had to come home short a tour because they ended up on a targeting list. Wow. And so we knew that threat was real while we were there, but saw it only rarely. And and often tangentially we only saw it. I mean, I did, you know, in this tour, I had guns pulled on me multiple times, you know, sometimes because you just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Other times it was somebody trying to demonstrate a show of force, and other times it was potentially a, a real threat developing. So you had to learn how to deal with, assess, and, and react to those rapidly. But very early on in our tour, my wife and I had just moved there. We were newly married and hadn't had a, a honeymoon yet. And some friends of ours had a home in a tropical location, maybe about three hours drive from the city we were living and working in and said, would you guys like to go use our home? And we said, sure. So we got permission to go do that. We were in contact with security, the, you know, our, our security the whole time. And we'd done an assessment of the place we were going and the area we were traveling through. And it was, it was an area that was relatively safe, but it did have some insurgent activity that we would have to pass through. And so as we, we made our way to this, this town, we are going on this kind of rough jungle road and we turn a corner and there's a group of men in front of us wearing kind of flip-flops and camo pants and tank tops. And they're holding a variety of both Western and Eastern weapons, AKs and M16s and, you know, kind of stern faced and, and we're kind of in the fatal funnel on this. And my wife and I have been married maybe, I don't know, four months at this moment. Between us, we had a revolver and a single Browning high power with a couple extra magazines. And so my 
adrenaline's going way up immediately, and we have mm. no idea who these guys are because they look like they they could be either the local militia or they could be the insurgent group operating in this area. And then as they see our our license plates on the car, you could see that he's soften and relax, and they start smiling and waving at us and and wave us on through. So we're learning how to decompress from that. We go on to our place the next day. We're we're out uh, on the beach, and again, it was a deserted tropical beach and my wife is sitting on the beach and I'm probably 150 to 200 yards offshore windsurfing or at least learning to to windsurf when directly behind the hillside that our the oh. home was at the base of we hear automatic weapons going off a couple of grenade blasts and and a, a firefight break out and I see my wife bolt up right on the beach turn and look at that direction and meanwhile I'm trying to figure out how do I get this windsurfer back to shore against a headwind in order to you know get back and save the day and of course by the time I literally crawled up the beach body completely spent from trying to you know get back to shore against this you know it had all passed and the uh, firefight that had taken place between the militia who we'd seen the day before and the insurgent group was was over and done with and there was really nothing either one of us could have done in the in the meantime anyway so you know you had moments like that where things would crop up and and you get through them wow that's fascinating so I'm glad that you brought up that your wife was there and that she was even, you know, in a little bit of danger herself. How much was your family aware of the the details of your job? Was she fully aware that you were a CIA case officer on a first assignment there in this country? I mean, do you how much do you compartmentalize your professional life and your personal life? Sure, that's you know, that's a great question. So my parents knew and then my wife knew. And that was it. My siblings did not know, you know, the guys I went to school with and best friends from growing up did not know. And, you know, if I dated somebody outside of the organization before I got married, they did not know. When I met my wife, I was operating, I was actually already undercover inside CIA. So when I first met her, I had to tell her what my job was per my cover, which obviously is, as we know, is only partially true, right? And so I had to figure out fairly quickly once oh. I realized that this relationship was not just a you know a passing relationship but was serious and to figure out a way to break cover with her and explain to her that yes I know I had lied about this thing that's a really big important thing what you do for a living but I'm not lying about anything else right and re refigure out my trust pattern while also not blowing the cover of my roommates who I lived with who were still also clandestine officers. <laughs> and so, you know, there's there's these fairly unique relational challenges that come up at that level and you got to find your way through them. And there's really not a lot of guidance that's given to you other than you can tell people who have a need to know and people interpret that differently. But at the end of the day, the agency would not have wanted me to get married if she were not witting because of the role a spouse plays in protecting the cover of an officer overseas. And that couldn't be done well without that person being witting. I see. I see. So did your wife then or do all spouses receive some training from the CIA, even though they are not a CIA employee? Again, the answer goes back to the, the it depends. It depends on the nature of the assignment, the nature of the threat, that sort of okay. stuff. At the end of the day, about halfway through that assignment, she became an employee anyway, which from the agency's perspective is a two-for-one benefit, right? And she ended up becoming a, a full-time counterterrorism officer over the course of her several years in the organization as well, working on or early on on the bin Laden unit. 
Wow. And back in the 90s, prior to Kenya and the, you know the embassy bombings and that sort of stuff, oh, wow. and so she was she was an excellent officer in her own right, but would never have known that she even had a, a gifting or a predilection for that if we weren't married and, and serving overseas and you know meeting those people. But even then, in answer to one of the questions you're talking about is how much do they know about what you're doing at the time? There were things that I would work on that she would have no need to know for, and so I wouldn't tell her. And there would be things she would work on that I would have no need to know, and she wouldn't talk to me about it. And, you know, you, you find the right balance of doing that. Hmm. But it, it's definitely throughout the course of any agency marriage, aside from separation, physical separation, not being able to deal with that, the aspect of secrecy and trust is definitely the biggest challenge that any agency relationship faces. I can imagine that's got to be stressful, even under the best of circumstances, for sure. But it sounds like the yes. you really made it work. It worked for us, but it, it would it would also become a contributing factor to why we'd make our decisions to to leave the organization and go off and do other things as well at a later date. Hmm. I see. So, how long were you with the agency altogether? I ended up serving with the agency for ten years. Three overseas postings, three very different overseas postings, and avoiding headquarters almost literally as much as I possibly could, which probably wasn't always for the healthiest of reasons. And, you know, my, at the end of my time in CIA, I knew my next posting was likely going to be back to headquarters. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that. And I knew I, I would spend, if I had been able to spend the first 10 years of my career, largely overseas, I knew the next 20 of my career would largely be spent back in the DC area with fewer and fewer postings overseas. And that at the moment was a less attractive prospect to me mm -hmm. than going out and doing something else. That's understandable for sure. So between the three overseas postings, I know you mentioned that right off the bat, you were operating under cover under an alias. Do you maintain that same one throughout or do you have to kind of switch personas as you change locations? All I'll say on that is that it depends. <laughs> okay, gotcha. It, it depends on the needs. Every officer's experience is going to have some shared similarities and some very specific differences based on the requirements of, of what they're doing and working on. And so it'll, it'll radically vary from officer to officer. That makes sense. That makes sense. How did you adapt to having to live under an alias? How did your family adapt as well? Any moments where you accidentally sold someone your real name or anything like that? Well, no. And, and let me clarify one moment. I did not live in alias. I was Doug Pattison everywhere I lived. Ah, okay. Okay. But that didn't mean there weren't moments where I might have to be somebody else. Okay. And there were absolutely moments where I would run into people that knew me as Doug when I wasn't supposed to be that. And you have to figure that out. Figure out how you handle it. Decide whether you okay. abort the reason you're originally there or is it just a coincidence? Is it manageable? I remember running into a friend from high school in a far eastern capital city hotel lobby five or seven minutes before I was supposed to go meet an asset who didn't know me as as me. And so, you know, having to find a way to explain why you're there, extricate mm. yourself and explain why you're not available for coffee the next morning and all that sort of stuff brings with it challenges. But I think that's one of the things the agency looks for is for people's ability to handle situations like that when they come up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Being quick on your feet like that. That's very important, I'm sure, especially at these most unexpected of times. Well, and, and at the end of the day, you're managing sometimes competing goals, which might be the collection of information with the security of the asset or the operation. And you got to figure out, you might have to make a judgment call as to which you proceed 
with as most as highest priority. Mm-hmm. So overall, the time that you spent overseas, did you develop any habits or any you know personal SOPs that you still kind of carried on long after you left the agency? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's funny. My kids laugh because one of the things I talk to them a lot about later on, and in my first two kids were really young when we were in, and so they they didn't have a clue. They share with almost everybody two key lessons that I took forward and, and carry with it a lot as lessons that are important to them today and that impact how they make decisions and so on and so forth. And, and kind of the first is what we call the rule of the stupids. And the, ru- the rule of the stupids is don't do stupid things with stupid people hmm. in stupid situations at stupid times. And you can get away with violating one or two of the rules of stupids, but as you add more stupid <laughs> to it, the risk of something going south increases exponentially, right? And so you could argue going cliff jumping with your buddies in a quarry is kind of stupid, mm-hmm. right? It's right on that edge of risk management. But if you were to talk about, hey, I have a, I have a buddy who's known for taking outsized risks, and we're going to go do it at night. And we're going to do it at night after having you know, shared a 12-pack of beer. The likelihood of a catastrophic event happening has just gone up exponentially. And so remembering the rule of the stupids, right, which includes physical location, physical times of the day or night, right, has been something that we have applied personally and in our family for as long as I can remember now. It's kept my kids out of bad situations or it's it's allowed them to see bad situations as they develop and it's just been core to what i think is important which is the development and management of situational awareness on a daily basis the second one that really has been key i think was the understanding that perception can be more important than reality in some respects and for me this was developed in learning how to handle hostile surveillance on you while working overseas. At the end of the day, when a surveillance team is following you, you never get to explain to them what choices you made or what actions you made. And what matters is their perception of the choices you make and the actions you make. And if you're operating in a particular type of environment and you interact with somebody on the street, even innocently, while under surveillance, it could make that individual's life incredibly difficult or short, depending upon the nature of the interaction, if you don't manage the perception of that interaction well. And what I mean by that is you could literally have an incidental encounter with somebody that your surveillance views as meaningful and significant that results in that individual getting picked up, arrested, and thrown into jail when it just happened to be an incidental interaction with somebody. And so understanding that, that you never get a chance to explain to them what your actions are. And in reality, there are plenty of people that aren't hostile surveillance that are around us all the, all the time that look at who we are and what we do. And they never ask us why we made those decisions. So recognizing that your actions and words might be perceived differently than you intended them to be. And don't be wedded to having to always second guess yourself, but recognizing that their, their perception is their reality. And that may be just as important as actual reality is another key component. Hmm. That's interesting. 
On that note, did you ever find yourself having to like wave off small talk from somebody because you don't want it to be perceived that you're meeting with that person or that they have undue interest in you, you know, to a, a surveillance team? I wouldn't say waving it off, but I will say you occasionally might have acted in a way that clearly demonstrated to anybody that was watching that this was a benign encounter. So w- waving it off might, in fact, provide okay. the opposite okay. attention. But making a big show, for example, and greeting them you know, very right, boisterously right. and so on and so forth might actually demonstrate this is a benign encounter. People make mistakes. You might end up actually going down a, a dead-end street while under surveillance. Okay. And then you got to figure out a way to make surveillance know that hey, that wasn't on purpose, guys. I wasn't trying to bust you sort of thing. People are human and you, and you figure it out. And, the, and this business is particularly a human business. So those, those issues come up. <laughs> okay. Boy, it's, it's certainly a lot to think about every time you step out the door, so to speak. It is. And, and, and we spend an awful preparing for those moments when you step out of the d- door like that. And I think uh, thinking about some of the other things that come to mind about that and, you know, preparation is key, right? So you don't ever go light on preparation. You've got to make sure you're, you're getting this right because legitimately people's lives are in danger. Oh yeah. Yeah. Not only your own, but actually, would you say that your life was less in danger because of you being a foreigner than the people you interacted with? Oh, absolutely. Not because I was a foreigner, but largely because I was protected by kind of the rules of the intelligence game. And and what I mean by that was, you know, I would be in a country officially. And so if I were wrapped up or arrested, you know, the worst that might happen, like happened to Marty Peterson in Moscow, would be I, I'd be arrested perhaps roughed up a little bit and then held for a brief period of time and then kicked out of the country. And obviously, as we know from some of the cases that we've seen in Russia and China, what happens to the assets that have betrayed their country, Russia or China, and and, and at the end of the day, that's what we're asking them to do. Those often end up with a bullet in their head. But the case officer is is kicked out of the country, made persona non grata, and sent on their way. Off, very very little worse for the wear. Now recognize that there are those terrorist threats out there, and a terrorist organization, as we saw in the case of Bill Buckley and and others like that, would love much, nothing more than to kidnap, interrogate, and murder mm-hmm. a CIA officer overseas. Yeah, totally different set of rules there. I'm sure. Yes. So in those regards, yes, you're very much at risk in the same way an asset must be or would be. But when you are doing the work most of the time overseas, your risk, the worst thing that will happen is you get kicked out of the country. I do know about the Marty Peterson case, and I know that she stayed with the agency for many years after that. So for the people that get PNG'd out of a country, is that represent some sort of black mark against their record? I mean, I know that that's kind of the standard thing that happens if you get caught, but is it is it something where it just depends on each individual? It depends for sure. I would, without getting the specifics, I would say the circumstances of what happened would determine whether it was a black mark or a gold star. Right. Okay. But, you know, Marty was a phenomenal officer and she was a pioneer and doing things that literally nobody had done before and was due to no fault of her own that she was wrapped up in that case. Right. Okay. That makes sense for sure. So you stayed with the agency for a little over 10 years. I know you mentioned earlier, part of it was the family concerns that caused you to leave. Was there anything else that caused you to decide to move on? 
I guess uh, thinking about what my career was going to look like for the you know remainder, I was I joined young, and what that meant was that I still had a long time towards retirement, even after ten years in. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to stay in a large government bureaucracy for the next, I think it was going to be 23 years till I could retire. Or maybe maybe it was, it was going to be, sorry, it was going to be 20 years till I could retire. And so that just felt like a really wow. long time having already spent 10 years in. Hmm. And I know now that all of that time goes way faster than you think it does anyway. And it was the changing nature of what I'd be doing as well. I loved being a journeyman case officer. I didn't know that I would love being an instructor. I didn't know that I would love being a manager. I'd had one role overseas with management responsibilities and there were aspects of it I enjoyed and there were aspects of it I didn't. And so I wasn't sure yet whether that was something that I was going to really thrive in. And so, you know, that combination of thinking about what my career was going to look like and having to make sure that I chose family first was the driver. And I remember back to when I was getting married, my very first deputy chief of station said to me, as I was literally a day away from leaving to go back and get married, he pulled me into his office and he said, look, don't screw this up. He goes, the work we do is important, but your relationship with your spouse is more important. And he goes, most of us screw this up. Most of us are on second or third spouses. <laughs> Don't screw it up like we did. Because when you're 80, none of us will be there for you at your bedside. But hopefully, if you haven't screwed it up, your spouse and your kids will be. He goes, don't pay the cost that many of us have paid. It's not worth it. Hmm. It was a wise words for sure. It was. And so so that was always in the back of our minds as well as we were making those those decisions. Yeah. It, when you put it like that, it really makes it clear why you would leave. You've done the best, most rewarding parts of the job. And now you're ready to move on to something else that will be equally rewarding and you know more time with the family, more stability, et cetera. Well, I would add, I misunderstood at the time whether that was actually the most rewarding part. Hmm. It felt like it was, but I would argue that when I think back on folks like my mentor, their most rewarding part was not being a journeyman case officer overseas, but it was actually pouring into the multiple generations of future case officers that would follow. And if you think about that, that's truly leverage to be able to impact generations of people, not just one relationship, not just one you know asset who's reporting on one topic of information. And so I think had I thought about it more, had a little more maturity at that moment in time, I might have reckoned, I, I might have at least made a better informed decision because there's no doubt in my mind that the officers who stayed in beyond me will tell you that most of them found that their time mentoring other junior officers and or teaching in our training courses was some of the most rewarding work that they ever got to do. And many of them, even as senior officers, still got to recruit and run sources and still got to do cool stuff like that as well. They just also had to write performance reviews and deal with budgets and all that stuff as well. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I understand. So now that you've been out for a number of years, you know, any conversation these days, especially about the CIA is probably going to be polarizing to say the least. So is there anything about the CIA, your time there that you think is generally misunderstood by the public? Any myths that you want to correct or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, the, the main thing is 
particularly right now, I see so many folks that make assumptions about the organization leaning one way politically versus another. And I think what they're not recognizing is their view of the organization is skewed a little bit by the the vocal nature of or the large number of vocal voices of folks that have left who are professing a view one way or the other. And what they're not recognizing is that that's a little bit of an echo chamber of voices, and it doesn't actually reflect the nature of the folks that still work inside the building. And so as much as folks don't believe me when I say that the organization hews a largely centrist approach, it really does. That The organization literally doesn't, for the most part, care who the president is. They literally don't, because they know this too will pass. They go out and they know these threats are threats that don't care whether it's an election year or a lame duck president or, or whatnot. They may take advantage of some of those things, but in reality, the organization itself is A, a large bureaucracy with all the things that come with large bureaucracies. Therefore, it's almost impossible for it to be a conspiratorial-oriented organization. And that B, most officers out there are incredible patriots who they may lean left and they may lean right, but they're going out to execute on this vitally important mission of national security, which they know knows no political partisanship, right? The, The concept of national security. And so I think that to me is people need to learn to separate the voices that they're hearing out there and recognize that they they just may be a vocal minority of folks that don't represent the organization at that level. Senior leadership might be political, might be beholden to one administration or another, but for the most part, people who walk in those doors every day and go to work are there not thinking about which administration is in power, but thinking about which threats do we need to protect our nation against today. Hmm, absolutely. So on that note, you mentioned some people get out and they have an ax to grind and maybe they speak about it in a way that reflects their own biases, for example. Are there any books or documentaries or anything like that that you think really reflect accurately the CIA as you knew it? Anything? Because I'm always getting these requests for more reading material or more research material from people. So I'd like to hear it from someone like you on the inside. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I've got a, a series of posts that I've put together on in the past on Instagram on, on some books. Marty's book, The Widow Spy is a great book. Hank Crumpton's book, uh, The Art of Intelligence is very good. First In is excellent thinking about the beginnings of the war on terror. Those are all three very, very good books. There's a lot of books that have good pieces in them, even if the overall book isn't necessarily great. So I think, you know, there's so much out there that can be read, but recognizing that all of it is going to come at it from the perspective largely of having been cleared through the PRB. So there, there's no super secret stuff in there. The Billion Dollar Spy is a phenomenal book. So yeah, I mean, those, those would be some. I haven't seen a lot on the film world. I'm a big fan of. One of my favorite spy movies is A Most Wanted Man mm-hmm. with Philip Seymour Hoffman in it, based on the Jean Le Carre book. So I, I think that does a good job of showing some of the tradecraft. Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, obviously. But yeah, so those would be some of them. I think Jason Matthews' series of books, his first three books were were really well done. If you take out some of the you know, super sexy you know, mm-hmm. 
stuff and the case officers sleeping with assets and all that sort of stuff. Many of us who read those books were absolutely shocked that he got them through the PRB. And so I would definitely recommend those and was sorry that he passed recently. He was an excellent officer as well. Yeah, he wrote Red Sparrow. Is that right? Am I thinking of the right? He did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he wrote Red Sparrow, and and it's a it's actually he wrote a trilogy. Red Sparrow was turned into to a movie. The books are better, as is often the case. Of but from a fiction perspective, they're excellent. Okay, I'll have to check those out. I haven't read those yet. Oh, no, definitely. They are fast reads. He's an and he is an excellent writer. And I think one that's probably one of the preconceived notions that people don't understand is if you're a case officer recruiting spies, you will become an excellent writer hmm. because at the end of the day, it's your ability to convey the intelligence that you've collected to analysts and policymakers that matters. And you've got to be able to write well to do that. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So what are you doing now? What have you been doing since you left the CIA? A bunch of different things. I spend a fair amount of my day job working in a manufacturing business, running a big part of our business with operations in, in multiple countries. So staying in touch with that international aspect of, of what I used to do. But I also work on a bunch of film and, and TV projects in order to either help make them more realistic without sacrificing entertainment or help writers with their, their storytelling. And I've worked on a number of both network and cable shows currently working on SWAT, or I should say we're on hiatus right now between season four and season five, which uh, we'll start filming this summer. And that's a, a show on CBS. We've got some movie projects that are in, in development that will have an intelligence theme to them, which is fun. And then I, I teach at a local university in their Homeland Security Studies program on intelligence collection and do writing on intelligence topics and, and those sorts of things along the way. Wow. You do have a full plate then, sounds like. It is. It's a lot of fun though. Good, good. So if we were to watch, for example, if we were to watch SWAT right now, is there anything that you could point us to that, would, that you could say, uh, this was because of my suggestion that this scene occurred this way, they were written, they wrote it the other way? To begin with, for example? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Some of those storylines will be coming up this season that I could but that I can't talk about. Ah, but okay. but suffice to say, if you see one of the SWAT episodes that talks about interaction between local law enforcement and maybe FBI and how they handle an international threat in uh in an environment like Los Angeles, then there you might see my fingerprints on it. But the main thing you see my my fingerprints on actually is I've I developed a relationship with a large number of veterans, uh, some from the special operations community, who are now working in film and TV. And so SWAT hires me to help put them on the show. Oh wow! So that when you see folks handling weapons or breaching doors or you know driving armored vehicles, they are folks that have done that in real life and high threat environments with people shooting at them so that the viewers can uh, see it done realistically and not be distracted by somebody flagging somebody else with a weapon or, you know, those sorts of things. And so mm. I get, I get to put these vets on the show, get them jobs in Hollywood and they, they get to make the show better along the way. And I do that for most of the shows I work on in, in addition to consulting on them. Good. That sounds really interesting. It sounds like you're making the show better as well, because I know that there's a lot of viewers out there that are driven crazy when they see somebody flagging someone else, for example, yep. mishandling a weapon on TV. They like to rant about that stuff 
quite a bit. Exactly. And, you know, when we've got a, a tech advisor who I work with, who's on the show, who's an excellent SWAT officer, and he spends a lot of time with this, with the core cast of, of actors, making sure that they get it right. And they're so committed to getting it right, which is uh, phenomenal. But then when you see it's never one guy breaching a door, it's always, you know, a, a cast of folks doing it, right? A team. And so we need to make sure that those folks at the back of the mm-hmm. stack look just as good as the folks at the front of the stack. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of people that will understand what they're looking at and they'll be looking at it very closely when they're on, when it's on TV. And And so it's rewarding to be able to do that. And it's actually really rewarding to be able to get these vets roles and get them working in a new, new industry. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that can be a hard one to break into otherwise, I bet. Right. Good. So where can people learn more about you right now? Where are you online? So I'm online through a website called Inglorious Amateurs, which is a an homage to the OSS's designation as the Glorious Amateurs. I write a lot about intelligence topics there. So some of what I've talked about today, I've written about on there, and there's some other stories on there that I didn't share today. So they can they can find me there. They can find me on Twitter at Grayman Actual G R A Y man actual gray man actual and then they can follow me follow me on instagram on texas spy dad hmm, texas spy dad all right great hey i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me doug this is really fascinating stuff for sure awesome well i appreciate you having me on and let's find an opportunity to do it again absolutely all right thanks doug take care this podcast is brought to you by daydreamer media if you're interested in more of spycraft 101 look for my page on instagram at spycraft 101 or connect with me on patreon My patrons on Patreon get exclusive access to long-form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage and receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there is lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is produced for your universal listening pleasure. Any statements shared during our program are opinions and experiences of our team and guests. If you disagree with any content presented herein, please find another show before submitting nasty grams. This is a positive vibes only platform. If you love our show and want to connect, share your experiences, or know someone who we should interview on future episodes, please don't hesitate to get in touch through our website or Instagram. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.